Man, so good to see your faces this morning. Um, we are uh, closing out our series on the wilderness this, this, uh, this morning. And um, my name is Danny Bolin. I'm the worship pastor here at Eagles View Church. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us online. Make sure you say hi to Will in the comments there. And uh, make sure you, you put where you're watching from as well. And Pastor Bart texted me this morning. Pastor Bart is our lead pastor here at EBC, and he is in the Holy Land for the next couple of weeks. And he is getting to see all of these sites that we constantly talk about here. And it's amazing for, for him to get to go and, and walk where Jesus walked. He, saw, he sent a picture of, that's Bart and his wife, Hope. They are standing outside of the, the place where the upper room was. And so he's just so thankful. We as a church body gifted him that as a 20th anniversary gift um, to get to go on this trip. And we gifted him that about four years ago. And a little thing called COVID happened and it pushed everything back. And so now he's finally getting to go and uh, experience all this with his wife, Hope. And, and, and it's, it's very, very cool. Um, so when I was 20 years old, I decided to quit school and move to Austin to do the music thing down there. My brother, my oldest brother, gave me a job as his intern at his church in Austin. And I lived with my older brother for two years. It was, it was him, his wife, and they had three kids at the time. And I was in their house for three years. And when they found out they were pregnant with their fourth child... I knew it was time for me to go find somewhere else to live. So um, that's, that's the thing that went off in my mind, that now it's time to move because they're pregnant with their fourth child. So I was making about $12,000 a year at this time, all right? So my options were obviously very limited. I saved up as much money as I could, and I was able to buy a 1981 Coachman camper. And... Uh, it was about $1,200, and my plan was to get married and have my, my new wife, my new bride, come and move into this just trailer with me. Why are you laughing? Um, and she was still going to marry me, even though that was the plan, right? So, um, you know you actually have to pay to put these places in and hook them up to electricity and water? And in Austin... It's actually, it's, it's kind of expensive. It's, it's not cheap to hook these things up, even in a trailer park. And that was the plan at the time. But after I bought it, I couldn't find a place to hook it up that didn't eat up like 70% of my income at the time. And so I asked the church I was working at if I could just park it in their parking lot for a little while and live there. And the church had this uh, annexed parking lot across the street. It was in the same parking lot as, as a Walgreens. And I, they let me, they allowed me to park my trailer there, and I lived in it for three months there. Now, um, it, it, it was very, it was, it was a really difficult three months, but it was also one of the best three months of my life. It was uncomfortable. But here's the kicker. There was no electricity, which means there were no fans, no AC, no lights at night unless you had a flashlight. Um, I, had, I didn't have a way to charge my computer or my phone, and so, unless I was in my car. Thank the Lord. Well, okay, so th there's another thing. There, there was no water either, okay? So, no bathroom, right? But Walgreens is open 24-7, amen? 
That Walgreens bathroom became my second home over that three-month period. And uh, the, the church had a small shower there, and so I, I used that there as, as well at the church. And I was there from May through August and in 2012. And in, uh, in 2012 was the highest averaging temperatures in Texas history. And uh, it was awesome. It was, I was finally living on my own. I, for the first time in my life, I, I was on my own. I grew up in a family of, of seven kids. I had six brothers and sisters. And then when I went to college for a little bit, I moved in with six dudes. And so then, then for two years, I was in my brother's house, living around them and, and trying not to get in their way. I was finally living in my own space. I finally was on my own. I could do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. I didn't have to consider anyone else but me. I was home. But it turns out that the Austin summers get really hot and you sweat a lot. I would wake up in the morning completely drenched in sweat. And uh, I, I couldn't cook anything. I love to cook. And I didn't have any money, so I was living off of dollar burritos at, at Taco Bell. And um, the, the, the people, and then the, the people at Walgreens, they started looking at me kind of funny. And so I ended up needing to move out. At, at first, that, that place, that trailer felt like I was finally home, but it turns out that it wasn't home, and it wasn't the home that I always dreamed of. As we've been working through this series, Don't Waste Your Wilderness, I've gotten to speak with so many different people in our church that are walking through the wilderness. We, the wilderness of the unknown, the wilderness of doubt, the wilderness of loss and sacrifice. Today, we're closing this series on the wilderness. And I wanted to give kind of a helicopter ride over this idea of wilderness, over the scriptures, and see what it says about wilderness. And also, I wanted to discuss the difference between Egypt and the wilderness. Just like the Israelites in Exodus, as we've been talking about over the last few months, God rescues us, his children, from the bondage of sin and death, the Egypt of sin and death, and he takes us to the wilderness in order to take the Egypt out of us. If we're careful to focus our eyes on the Lord during these moments of wilderness, he changes us and he makes us look more like Jesus. He's preparing us to live lives of love and sacrifice. During Jesus' life, he sought out the wilderness. The wilderness didn't come to him. He actively went after it. Don't get the wilderness in Egypt confused. The wilderness is bondage and death. And the wilderness is freedom and life, even though it's ridiculously difficult. The wilderness, in the wilderness, even your next step is really uncertain. But the, the uncertainty causes us to, to run to our Father for every single need that we have. Jesus didn't see the wilderness as something to just endure. The wilderness is where he went to go and be with God. To gain the strength that he needed to live that life of love and sacrifice. We all have this sense that the wilderness is not home. 
It doesn't operate the way, it ought, the, the way that home ought to operate. What the wilderness really is, is waiting. It's waiting for the promised land. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is a really interesting way of starting off a letter to the early church. This letter was written to people who had grown up in these Roman-occupied regions. They had most likely been living there their whole lives. They weren't foreigners. I wonder if they read this letter and they thought, is he talking to me? But yes, he was. He was saying that even though you are home, remember you're not home. Later on in chapter 2, he calls them temporary residents and foreigners. And again, he's using this rhetorical device to say, even though you grew up here, you have all of your family and friends all around you, you're living a peaceful life, you're still not home. That's what the whole story of the Bible is about. The Bible is produced under the Spirit of God, but it's produced by men who were exiles. And it's written by exiles for exiles. And all throughout history, you would have these kings that in order to secure their authority and power, they would try to tell the people that we're here. We finally made it. We're not in exile anymore. We're in the promised land. This is the promised land. But then you have the prophets who are constantly prophesying to these men and the Israelites. And they're saying, this isn't it. Is there still suffering? Then we are not home. Is there still oppression? Then we're not home. Is there still longing? Then we're not home yet. The biblical writers underwent so much suffering. But with suffering comes weight. When someone who's undergone great suffering speaks, people tend to shut up and listen. The wilderness adds weight to our words. This quote from Hannah Williamson came up on my Facebook page a few months ago, and I saved it because it's exactly what I needed to hear at the time. It says this, your calling is going to crush you. If you're called to mend the brokenhearted, you're going to wrestle with a broken heart. If you're called to heal God's little ones, you're going to experience your own share of trauma. If you're called to prophesy, you're going to struggle with self-control of the tongue. If you're called to lay hands, you're going to deal with spiritually rooted disease. If you're called to preach and teach the gospel, you will be sifted for the wisdom that anoints your message. If you're called to empower, your self-esteem will be attacked. Your successes hard fought. Your calling will come with spiritual warfare and sifting. Both are necessary for your mantle to be authentic, humble, and powerful. Your crushing won't be easy because your assignment is not easy. And you can't minister powerfully what you haven't walked out. When you're feeling the weight of it coming down on you, run to the Father who longs to be your comfort. Let him whisper your true identity over you while resting under the shadow of his wings. Position yourself against his heartbeat. Let him renew your strength and set your eyes forward. 
No olives, no oil. No grapes, no wine. Your oil is not cheap, my friend. It's the wilderness in this life that gives us the voice to say what God wants to say to his people. Don't waste your wilderness. If you've been through great loss, God's going to use you and partner with you to comfort those who are going through great loss. If you're a current addict, whether it's, or, or a recovering addict, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or porn addiction, God's going to use you and partner with you in speaking to people who are in the chains of addiction. If you're working through deconstruction, as many of us are, God's going to use you and partner with you to speak to others who are walking through the wilderness of deconstruction. God is building a story in you that he wants you to share and to partner with him in helping others through the wilderness. Do you ever feel like Peter felt? Do you feel like a foreigner living in your own home? Home is a place where everything should be okay. But the place often that, that should be okay doesn't operate the way home ought to operate. And it doesn't feel the way that home ought to feel. I think Peter, if he were here today, he would say to all of us, he would call us all temporary residents and foreigners. He would say, this place in which you're living that you grew up in, the place where you have all your family around and you work and you go to work every day, this is not home. The 3.8 million miles of the United States is not home. The 349 square miles of Fort Worth is home, but it's not home. The 1,400 square feet of my house is home, but it's not home. And the one square foot of my own mind is home, but it's not home. Do you ever feel like a stranger or an exile in your own mind? I do. Both in a literal and metaphorical sense, exile involves this sense of displacement and separation, a longing to return or re reconciliation. And part of the reason why this feeling is so universal is because we're all in exile in our own minds. The fundamental mystery of the universe is why do we feel so alone? Why are we alienated from even our own bodies? Why is it so difficult for me to be happy? And why do we constantly screw this up? Have you noticed all the people in the last few years who are struggling with sexual identity? They're having identity crises. They feel like a stranger living in their own bodies, alienated from their own self. We all have this duality of two persons that are living in our own head. The Apostle Paul felt this as well. And he writes in Romans 7 about addressing his own battle with sin. And he says this, starting in verse 14. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. 
And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is the sin in me that does it. Paul is outlining this duality of self. He has this battle going on in his own mind. Keep in mind that the book of Romans was written by Paul, but it wasn't an early writing of his. Most scholars believe that it was written about 15 to 20 years after Paul's conversion. But he's still struggling with this Egypt in his own mind and heart. He's not a baby believer. He's an established apostle writing scripture that would be read and interpreted for thousands of years. And he's still struggling with this battle in his own heart and mind. During my sabbatical last year, I was able to read the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No, I didn't watch a movie. No, I didn't see a production. I actually read the book. It's only about 80 pages, but it was really hard because I got a few pages in and I realized there were no pictures. Why do people do that? Many of us know this story in different forms of media like TV or musicals or movies. It's a terrifying book. It's a terrifying story. But at the heart of this story, at the center of it, is the good Dr. Jekyll. The good Dr. Jekyll was a man who, as his life went on, he starts to realize he's becoming really unhappy with his life. And the reason was, he says, with every day... And from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the, and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck. That man is not truly one, but truly two. I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. What he's saying is that as time went on, he began to realize that every person is not just one person, but two persons. There's a drastic duality in every human being. And Dr. Jekyll became very unhappy with his life because he felt like this was a dead end. He was getting really tired of being the battlefield of these two selves. He thinks to himself, how can anyone be happy if they're constantly in this inward battle of good and evil? He has this virtuous self, a self-denying self, a self that wants to deny self, but then he has this selfish, grasping, selfish self. And both keep the other from enjoying life. He says this, if each, I told myself, could but be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that is unbearable. So in other words, he believed that this drastic duality in his own mind was the reason why everything was wrong with his life. He says, the unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path doing the good things in which he found his pleasure, and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hand of this extraneous evil. So he's a scientist, so he obviously creates a potion. And the potion enables him to separate these two parts of themselves. 
The depraved part of him is called Mr. Hyde. And when he separates these two parts of himself, he, he realizes that Mr. Hyde is far more evil, far more depraved and selfish than he could have ever imagined. Dr. Jekyll says in this book, all humans as we meet them are commingled out of good and evil, and Edward Hyde, alone in the ranks of mankind, was pure evil. Dr. Jekyll is saying that there were no redeeming qualities in this man. Everyone who encounters Mr. Hyde in the book has this sinking, terrible feeling when they look into his face because it's like looking into the face of selfishness itself. After some research, I did some research on the writer of this book, Robert Louis Stevenson. He was raised in a, a devout Presbyterian household. This work, I believe, came out of his upbringing. And in the book, he even quotes from the same passage, Romans 7, several different times. Robert Louis Stevenson did a great job of depicting this battle of duality. But there's a hopelessness in this book that is hard to stomach. I think he depicted what this duality looks like apart from Christ really well. All of humanity is fighting this battle from birth. We have this battle happening in our own minds. This is a battle we cannot win. Mr. Hyde in the book is more depraved than Dr. Jekyll could have ever dreamed. And at the end of the book, Mr. Hyde ends up winning because they both die. It's a tragic story. It's a tragic book. But it's, the, but it's a true story because it's the story of all of humanity. This story and this passage of Romans 7 have resonated with me so much. And I feel like it puts its finger right on the pulse of what I'm constantly going through and working through in my own mind. We as humans are all in this battle in our minds that we cannot win. It started in the first few chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1, God creates humans on the day six of creation. He creates them in his own image and he gives them duties and responsibilities of taking care of God's good world and ruling over it. And God wants them to partner with him to take care of this world. He gives the humans only one rule, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis chapter 3, there's this snake in the garden who tempts the humans. The snake sows distrust in the humans' hearts, and he gets them to believe that God is holding out on them and that they don't need God. The humans choose to distrust God and believe the snake. They took the fruit of the forbidden tree and all of creation was changed from that day forward. God pronounces a curse over all of humanity and all of creation, but he gives them hope. He says that one day there will be a man who will take care of this evil and settle it once and for all. As he pronounces this curse on the snake, he says to the snake, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He gives this promise of a human, the offspring of the woman, who will crush the head of the offspring of the snake. 
But this human will also suffer a mortal wound and die. It's an image of a man who steps on the head of a snake, but the fangs of the snake grab his foot. And so the man ends up dying. This is a prophecy about Jesus right here in the third chapter of the Bible. So because of what humans have done, they have to set out on their own. Because of their actions, they have to go start a new life. They have to go learn a new life. They are now exiles, banished from God's good garden. They no longer get to enjoy God and his creation, but now they're forced to fight against it. To toil and to scrape for every need that they have. But God chose one family to represent him and to become a kingdom of priests so that all of humanity could be reconciled back to God. The Israelites. We've been following the story of the Israelites and their exit from Egypt and their journey through the wilderness in the last few months. Before they were allowed into the promised land. If you keep reading in Exodus and throughout the Torah and into Joshua... They finally make it to the promised land. They reach the promised land finally. God is with them. And they settle into the promised land. God kept his promise to them. But the problem of evil in every human heart was still at play. Egypt was still in their hearts. The Israelites begin to worship idols again. In fact, it gets totally out of control. We know from the prophets that the worship of idols and the oppression of the poor and the vulnerable was rampant throughout all of Israel's history. Even in the time of Solomon. Solomon lived in around 950 BC. And that's, the time of Solomon is known as the golden age of all of Israel. They felt like they had finally made it to the promised land. They were respected on the world stage of nations. They were incredibly rich. There was gold everywhere. They finally had a permanent temple to worship God and where God's presence would dwell. But if you keep reading through the story of Solomon, you realize that Solomon instituted slave labor. And there was oppression of people who were vulnerable. Israel had become the very thing God rescued them from in Egypt. They eventually all get exiled out of the promised land. And for the next 500 years, they live under the thumb of some of the most oppressive nations in all of history. When Cyrus the Great of Persia took power in 539 BC, many of the Jews were allowed to return to Israel. They were in the promised land again. But they quickly realized that they were not home. They continued to be oppressed. They waited for that coming king, the snake crusher who would finally break the bonds of all of slavery to these oppressive empires and would finally make home feel like home. Jesus was that king. Jesus didn't come to address the symptoms of the issue, though. Even a Jewish king, even if if a Jewish king came and overthrew the, the, oppressive, the oppressive kingdom of Rome and he conquered Rome, it still wouldn't have felt like home. The problem of evil and Egypt in every human heart would eventually get us right back into this situation. When Solomon was king, it felt like home for a moment. The symptoms 
had subsided for a moment. But Egypt, in the human heart, was still at play. The battle of evil in the heart of every human would eventually lead us right back into this oppression. Jesus knew that he didn't come just to address the symptoms of the issue. That he came to address the core of the issue, the heart of it. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as the perfect, spotless lamb. He was the snake crusher. The offspring of the woman in Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the snake once and for all, but would also suffer a mortal wound that would kill him. This wasn't the only way to defeat evil. God could have chosen to wipe out all of humanity because evil lives in the heart of every man, woman, and child. One of the most pressing questions that our culture has for for Christianity is, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that? Or, if God were good, then he wouldn't allow suffering. I think these are valid questions. He could. He could have rid the world of Egypt. He could do it in a heartbeat. He could do it with with a a word from his mouth or a, a snap of his finger. He could take care of all the suffering and evil. But in order to do that, he would have had to wipe humans off the face of the earth. Because Egypt and evil live in the heart of every man, woman, and child. Jesus knew that the only way to save the humans that he loved so much was to take all of the suffering, all of the mistakes, all of the pain and the evil onto himself and be crucified and die and pay the price for those things. He lived a life of radical love and sacrifice and he allowed himself to be trampled by the beast of Rome and the Jewish leaders. He laid his life down so that Egypt the evil in the human heart could finally be conquered once and for all. Because of what Jesus did, he paid the price for our freedom. He took us out of the Egypt of sin and death. We went from this battle, this inward battle that we all deal with, with evil, that we could not win, to now a battle that we cannot lose. Through Jesus alone, we are now victorious over sin and death. We no longer have to face sin and death with no hope. He took our punishment and we are now accepted before God by no merit of our own. Amen? Just like Paul, we are now being sanctified. Sanctification is this process that every believer is working through and going through. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Galatians says that if we have the Holy Spirit in us, that we're going to produce fruit. And the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sanctification is a beautiful, continuous process where God, in his infinite wisdom and love, works to change us, sinners who have been justified, and he changes us, and he rescues us from sin, and he takes the bondage of sin away, and he makes us look more like Jesus. He is shaping us, 
Sanctification is him shaping us and molding us to look more like Jesus. It's a reflection we, to, so where we become reflections of Christ's character and filled with strength to carry out acts of love and goodness. The wilderness is the primary way that God sanctifies us. He takes us to the wilderness in order to take the Egypt out of us. Sanctification is a process. It doesn't happen the instant we believe and are, and are covered by the blood of Jesus. It happens in the weeks and months and years and decades after we begin to know God and follow him and walk with him. Sometimes we as believers are so hard on ourselves when we stumble and fall or when we struggle with sin. And each one of us has experiences with our own father that directly influence the way that we see God. This affects our image of God. Our own fathers do that. Do you experience that as well? If you had a father or some of us had dads that, that would freak out on us when we disobeyed or when we made mistakes or when we messed up. Did you ever try to hold the flashlight for your dad? I found this awesome meme. When you're helping dad fix the car to learn, but all you learned was how to hold the flashlight and get yelled at. This affects the way we view God. But God is our father. When my son Amos was born, I was such a proud dad. Amos was a very active baby. He started holding my finger to walk. And as he started to walk, I started to let go of his hand. And he would begin to take a step. And he would take a step, and then he would fall down. And you know what I did? I walked over to him, and I said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you idiot. I can't believe you've done this. I'm so disappointed in you. Do you think that's what I did? Absolutely not. You know what I did? I grabbed my phone immediately. I started filming it. I'm crying. I called my mom. I'm like, Mom, he's walking. He's finally walking. I was so proud of him for taking that first step. And then the next day, he starts trying again. And you know what? He may have taken two steps the next day. And he took one step, and then he got two, and then he fell down. And you know what I did as his father? I walked over to him and I said, what's so hard about this? Why can't you just get this? Look at me. It's easy. I can walk. Look. Do you think that's what I did? Of course not. No, when he fell down as his father, I went over and picked him up. I comforted him. I told him how proud I was of him and so excited. And then I put him down so he could keep walking. Before long, Amos started taking three steps and four steps. And then he started walking across the room. And then he started running. And he started jumping and sprinting. And now he doesn't even have to think about the mechanics of walking because it's just second nature to him. And you know what? He still falls sometimes. It's, it's rare. But when he does, he pops right back up and he says, I'm okay. And then he keeps running. 
This is the process of sanctification. It's a process. But when we stumble, when we fall into sin, our Father doesn't look, us, look at us and say, what is wrong with you, you idiot? I can't believe you would do something like this. I'm so disappointed in you. No. He comes to us. He picks us up. He comforts us. And he says, look how far you came this time. Now keep running. The primary way that God sanctifies us is by taking us into the wilderness. It's not easy. He takes us to the wilderness in order to take the Egypt out of us. The wilderness is where he takes those whom he loves. One day, God will finally make this whole world into Eden again. When Jesus comes again in his fullness, the whole world will be Eden. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more night, no more suffering, and no more wilderness. We will finally be fully sanctified, looking just like our older brother and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We won't have this internal battle anymore. We will finally win that battle in our minds through the power and grace of Jesus. Amen? There are moments in this life where we can be there now. We can be in the promised land now. Heaven is a reality right now. We have God's spirit living in us. We are small pieces of Eden. Our job as followers of Jesus is to live our lives as if that reality of heaven has already come. The promised land is now and not yet. My wife Casey and I just welcomed our fifth child into our house. We had four boys and then we just had a little girl. This is, this is Eden and my wife Casey. Our baby girl's name is Eden and uh, we named her that because that's where it all started and that's where it's all going to end again. That's our hope. That's the promised land. That's where we're going to rest one day in the fullness of the presence of God. Guys, pregnancy is so hard. And it's, it's really hard on Casey too. <laughs> Whenever we're in the hospital about to have our babies, Casey is... She's in the throes of labor. She's in pain. She's having contractions. And I have so many people that are so sweet, and they're texting me and checking on her. And I always have to say something like, yeah, she's fine. I bit my lip earlier on some pizza, and I kind of have a headache. I think we're going to need another hospital bed. She thinks it's hilarious. The Bible uses pregnancy as, and, and childbirth as this image of where we are right now in the wilderness, this waiting period. Pregnancy is an in-between time. It's a reality of now and not yet. When you're pregnant, you are a mother and not yet. That's the reality that we're living in. 
We have God's presence living in us. We are little pieces of Eden. We can have heaven now and not yet. In Exodus, the thing that made the wilderness bearable for the Israelites was the presence of God. They had a, a pillar of fire during the, during the night and a pillar of smoke during the day. That was God's presence that was with them. God's presence is what makes the wilderness bearable. They had the tabernacle in the middle of their camp, a little small piece of Eden where they knew God was with them and they could go and be with him. God's presence is what makes the wilderness bearable for us too. So where can we find God's presence now? There's a few different ways. First is prayer. Time with our Father, sitting with Him, talking to Him, telling Him all of our wants and needs, giving Him all of our fears and anxieties, complaining to Him about the wilderness and how hard it is. You know He wants that from you? We rest in Him in those moments. These are moments of Eden. We, we also see God's presence through worship. Singing about him, singing to him, reminding ourselves of biblical truth. We also see it through community, and we can have it through community. Time with our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the most basic human needs and feelings is this feeling of being alone. It's fascinating that you can be in a room full of people and every single person still feels alone. When we share our lives with our brothers and sisters, it's a small taste of Eden now. If you're not in a life group, you don't know what you're missing. Go check it out. Community is one of the primary ways that we can experience God's presence. Go to Guest Central, go talk to Pastor Daniel, and go get in a life group. Then the last way is service. Washing people's feet. Nothing makes us more like Jesus and look more like Jesus and act more like him than when we lay down our lives to serve other people. When we take care of people who need help, like orphans and widows and the poor and the immigrants or people that are in prison. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that when you take care of these people, you're actually taking care of him. If you're struggling with where to see Jesus, if you don't think you see him, if you don't know where to find him, go take care of these people. That's where he is. If you're not in Christ today, you are in a battle in your own mind that you cannot win. Believe in Jesus.